Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I was the pudgy milkless vice president of the family. Like, like they loved each other so much and I was there too, you know, and, and like, I was nothing. Like I didn't know what nothing meant until I became a dad. And then I was like, Oh, that's what nothing is. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a fun episode. Hey, once again, once in a while, a fun episode. Mike Birbiglia is one of my favorite comedians, and he's, I think, almost more than a comedian. He's done these remarkable, beautiful movies like Sleepwalk With Me. He's done one-man shows. He's been on Broadway, written books. He's just terrific. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of his work. And he just wrote a book called The New One. And he, he was telling me about it, uh, pitching me on it, I guess. And he was telling me that it was a book about fatherhood. And I sort of knew that because I'd seen his show here. It's on Netflix, his one-man show here, and, and, and seen him talking. Mike Birbiglia is somebody who did not intend to become a father, did not want to become a father, became a father. And it was really tough. Bonding was really tough. Um, what it did to the marriage was really tough. And these are like foundational human things that a lot of people go through and they're really hard to talk about. And so he sent me his book and um, and I read it in a day. I loved it. I loved how honest he was about something of incredible difficulty to be honest about. I love the way he wove through the poetry of his wife. He's just a beautiful, beautiful poet. Um, in some ways, uh, not in some ways, it's probably my favorite part of the book. And I was so excited to get to talk to him about it because I think about fatherhood all the time. I've had a different experience in him. But I think something that we both have noticed is that there's just very little discourse about it, very little examination of it, very little preparation from it. And, and if you're looking around when you're trying to become a father or you are a father or you're just a parent and trying to find something that helps help you structure how to think about it, there's actually less there than you'd expect. And much of what is there isn't very honest isn't very good, doesn't help you figure out the emotional dimension of what you're about to go through. So I'm not sure this uh, episode will be for everybody, but I think it's a very fun conversation, even as it touches on deep and sometimes very dark themes. Uh, and I, I want it to be something, obviously, this is Mike and I talking about our experiences, which are very different from each other and will be very different from others. But I hope there's uh, enough in here that's universal, that everybody can connect to it at least a little bit. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here, with great pleasure, is my conversation with Mike Birbiglia. Mike Birbiglia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ezra. Love the podcast. Thank you. You've got a lot going on. You're, you you got your own podcast. How does it feel to be the, the last comedian to get a podcast? 
Um, I had a podcast a couple of years ago called the old ones and, uh, and I really enjoyed doing it. Um, but then I got, I stopped doing it because it was slowing down my productivity as a writer. Cause I was fundamentally like, okay, this, this isn't helping me write. And what I, what I am fundamentally at my core as a writer. So I stopped doing the old ones, even though I enjoyed doing it. And then with, with the pandemic, I came up with this concept, working it out, which is I work out my writing in real time with people like Ira Glass, John Mulaney, Hannah Gadsby, basically all these people who would be dream people for me to call and bounce ideas off of. And thereby, I'm actually not slowing my writing productivity. I'm just recording it and releasing it to the universe. Is that actually working for you? Because something I have often had the intention to do this. Uh, I also think of myself as a writer at heart. I'm like, you know, my podcast is going to be a place where I work out ideas and articles. And then I find that the work of keeping the conversation moving means that when the podcast ends, I have absolutely no idea what happened in it. Like somehow it all occurred. And people seem to enjoy the the outcome, but I don't know what anybody said. And so if I ever want to find out, I have to go back and re-listen to the show. I think you do. I think the re-listening is an essential component of the writing process, at least with my podcast. I, I, I do re-listen to them. You know, like I, I did this interview with Hannah Gadsby the other day where she said I was explaining a joke to her that I, I was working on about how I'm 42 I'm o- the expression is over the hill and I never understood the expression until I got on the hill and I looked around and I was like, oh, there's natural causes. They're not close, but they're coming. And uh, and then and then a bunch of other ruminations about aging. And she made this observation about about being over the hill, which is that the walking down the other side of the hill is actually a completely different experience than the walking up of the hill. In other words, on the way up, you're cataloging all these things and tracking all these things on the way down. You start to savor smaller things, the, the cup, you know, the cup of coffee, the time, you know, the conversation with your wife about something specific. And it, and it just becomes a, it's a completely different experience. And when she said that, I actually listened back to it because I was like, that I think that I should loop that into the ultimate show, which I'm I'm writing. And also on the way down, you're much likelier to hurt your knees and ankles, as I found. <laughs> yes. regret, but also seems relevant to the to the process of aging. Um, That's right. I've been wanting to start because it all is happening. COVID. I've been wanting to start my show like by actually asking people where they like. How are you? Like, how are you actually doing? Sure. Because I think people's emotional ranges are in different places than normal. Like, how, how are you today when I'm talking to you? Pretty good today. I, I find that uh, a lot of my happiness is based on can I get outside and walk for about 40 minutes before noon, essentially. And a lot of that comes down to like childcare and, and me and Jen sort of, you know, asking Jen like, hey, do you mind if I go for this walk? And 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 she is extraordinarily amenable to to this part of me, which is like, if I don't walk early in the day, I get very, very depressed. And so that's a, that's a huge part of it. And then, um, and then I feel pretty happy because last night I, my wife and I are staying in Rhode Island right now because my brother and sister and their families live in Rhode Island. And we thought maybe we could see them in distance, um, outdoors. Right. And, uh, and so yesterday we were able to, after hours when it was very quiet, go to a beach 
and sort of distance and 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 see them and it was it was really quite joyous so so i today i'm good overall ezra like bad <laughs> if i'm yeah. being com- if i'm being completely honest bad i mean it's real i mean I, it's hard obviously i'm in a position of privilege and and uh it's hard for me to say that because let's uh, i've had to do this on the show before let's agree that many people are worse off than we are like that's yeah premise yeah that yeah and then also be able to talk about how people's lives are going yes uh so many people are struggling in so many worse ways and so i'm so lucky I have my my wife and daughter. We have our health, and and uh, but yeah, uh, I'd say my mental health is worse than it's been in twenty years. Yeah, I, I hear that. I am. Um, I was thinking what you were saying about trying to go out for the walk in the morning. Um, the thing that I didn't expect to be so hard about this is that it's clear I do did not have any real understanding of the way spaces affect me and how I used them before. It was I, just natural. Uh, yes. That's right. That like I had all these places to go for different things I needed. Yep. You know, one mood I would kind of naturally go out to a bookstore, another mood I would go out to a coffee shop, another yep. mood I would go for a walk, another need. And I don't even think I realized I was doing it. And now I will sometimes have this experience where I will feel terrible, like terrible, like anger is a much nearer emotion for me than it normally is. Mm-hmm. And then I will, for whatever reason, go outside. Like I will go like see a friend in their backyard and all of a sudden I will feel fine. And mm-hmm. it will turn out that whatever I was mad about was not the problem. I'm just getting very emotionally claustrophobic. There's some kind of physical interaction. And I found that really hard. Like it's been sadder than I thought to lose my ability to like regulate myself through changing physical space. Yeah, and I, I experienced that as well. And I think to write the the book essentially I was journaling about things that were taboo, right? About the first year of having a child and sort of like feeling the things you're saying, anger and depression and and this feelings of like feeling like, oh, I'm never going to be a part of this unit, which is my wife and my daughter. They have a special thing and I'm on the outside of that. And the journaling I did then ended up being this book, the new one. And then the, the journaling I'm doing right now I I I think it'll end up being a book, but also just on its own merit. I always tell people this, who people who aren't even writers, write in a journal because usually by the end of it, if you write down the things you're most angry or upset about, by the end of it, if you read it back, you'll you'll have some zoom out perspective on on what's going on with yourself. My wife just a couple of weeks ago convinced me to start doing morning pages where oh, yeah. you know, some people do it where they the first thing in the morning they they write for three pages i do it where i write on for 12 minutes and it really helps um and the idea is to write without judgment which is hard for me i don't know if you find this hard it is hard for me as a writer <laughs> to write in an authentic way where i'm not like oh no that's an unclear argument that yep. sentence doesn't follow that that's clunky yeah <laughs> it's been a real yep. to just try to let uh, a, a more transparent relationship between me and the page emerge but it, it has been helpful. But it's also, I don't know if you felt this looking back at your journals from that first year. It's also been sad, right? I keep sure. thinking about how this is one of my, you know, things go well, 80 years of life on this earth. And there are a lot of amazing things in it. I mean, you know, my son is great and and, and a lot of things are going well. But man, the number of them that just begin not feeling great today is yep. just like I'm yep. starting to recognize it as a real, as a real problem, given that this is going to go on for who knows how long that, but you can't just, you can't just lose a year to this. You got to figure something out. 
I think that's right. And I think for me, it was the podcast because it was figuring out a way that I can have a job, which is creating a, you know, a, a podcast and then also continue to write and collaborate with peers in a way that makes me feel okay. And, but yeah, I agree with you. I don't, it's not easy. It's everyone has to figure out how to make it not a lost year. I will say this and I'm not bullshitting. One of the periods of joy, you sent me your book. You said I was going to enjoy reading it. We don't know each other. I've just kind of Twittered back and forth once or twice. Um, And I loved it. It was like four (laughs) hours of really, really, I sat outside and I read it and like kept reading it right through to it being finished. And it was great. But but I was beginning to say before we started that you're very far, I'm sorry, from the best part of it. Um, The really great part (laughs) of your book is... I've been trying. To, I've been trying to appreciate poetry more, and your book is shot through with your wife's poems about um, young parenthood. And in some ways, I, I actually connected more to her side of it a little bit than yours. But some of her poems just I can't get out of my head. Like she has one about the toddler's clock of now, and I have a toddler now, and the clock of now is a clock where all of the numbers just have the word now, That's and I right. think about it seventy six times a day. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a beautiful poem. I mean, one of the challenges of this book was that. We, it was, it's, it's my wife, Jen's poetry and, and my prose. And one of the challenges was that I would have in a word document, her poem that was matching my prose. And I would read her poem and just go, this is not nearly as good as that poem. And, and it's, and it's, it was, it made it very intimidating, very hard to do, but, but it's ultimately, I'm so glad that you connected with that because you know, one of the things I learned from collaborating with my wife is that, you know, she wrote under a pseudonym for years and years and years, 10, 15 years, whatever. And and until I coaxed her into writing this book publicly with me, really was going to just do that and not and be anonymous and 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 the 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 quality and the, the of of her work is so extraordinary and it's just it, you know what it makes me think it makes me think that there are just thousands and thousands if not hundreds of thousands if not millions of writers in the world secretly writing stuff in their morning pages that are better than anything being published you know, there was just in, in my world of journalism and stuff, a, a fight over this blogger, Scott Alexander, who writes under a pseudonym uh, at a place called Slate Star Codex, and the New York Times was going to profile him, and they were going to use his real name, and, and, and he didn't want that. And I don't know by the time this comes out how that will be resolved. I, I hope they didn't use his name because um, he has a life he wants to protect. But something I've been thinking about around that, and, and I wonder about it with you persuading your wife to write under her own name, is the more my name has become something that matters in my work, which is to say a name that some people know and have associations with, the more joy has drained out of my writing. Oh my gosh. That's and there's a real freedom to writing under a pseudonym. So I'm, I'm curious if you think uh, you, you actually did, did your wife a, a favor by persuading her to write under her name, because I do think there's something to being able to write and it's not you, it's the writing. You're not trying to protect your ego. You're not trying to change the way people relate to you in the world. You're just trying to say what it is you really think. I know. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think I think there's so much joy in anonymity. I, I, I convinced Jen to start an Instagram feed at J Hope Stein where she posts poems and these sort of multimedia pieces. And uh, I, I think she's just doing it for me. <laughs> 
think I was like, we have a book. It's public. It's out in the world. We have to tell people that we exist, you know? And, uh, I really genuinely think like when, when she does her requisite, like 30 posts, I don't know if she'll ever do it again. Since we're talking about it, do, do you have it in front of you? The, the toddler clock of now? I do. It's, uh, it's in the chapter called slice of life, which is all about my addiction to pizza. And, uh, it's called the now clock. The now clock is the clock of a toddler in which every number is replaced by the word now and the hands of the now are always pointed directly at the now or between two nows. It's so great. So beautiful? I've spent I spent a number of hours over the past couple of weeks living in the first um in, in the period of your wife's pregnancy and then in the first, I guess, year or two of your daughter's life. How old is your daughter now? Just so I know where she, we really are in time. She just she just turned five. It's always very confusing for people because it was this was a Broadway show two years ago and now it's a book. Um, and so people always think she's 13 months old. <laughs> she's suspended in time at 13 months old. But no, it's it's really the book is it's about the pregnancy and the first 13 months of my daughter's life. And 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 it sort of ends there because that was a turning point for me where I realized that there was a way for me to be a member of uh, the new family unit or, you know, the new one, which is the title. How, how, just so I, I know where you are, how is fatherhood for you now compared to then? The now clock. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. I think uh, five years old. And then, you know, once you start telling people this, they go, oh, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, no one had told you this before. But five years old is a spectacular age because she's curious. She wants to learn to swim. She wants to learn to read. She'll improvise stories with me. She'll, you know, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, in her, you know, the joy of seeing her play with her cousins makes me so happy. I mean... They're honestly, and, and, and what I chalk it up to, and it makes me feel like kind of an idiot saying this or admitting this, around 13 months is when she became very verbal. And then at, from that point on, I felt like I could connect with her because I'm very verbal. <laughs> and it's it's genuinely embarrassing to admit that because, of course, as a dad, it shouldn't take your baby becoming verbal for you to be able to connect with them. But it did. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, it, you know, that's funny because it's one of my questions for you, which is the book is so much about the difficulties of the pregnancy. And then you had an experience which a lot of fathers had have and which scared me a lot becoming a father where you had a lot of trouble bonding in that first year. And it sort of constructed the book as a redemption story, but the redemption happens very quickly at the end, the, like yes, collapsing into a unit where now you feel on the inside. It happens all at once where like I've spent a lot of time and the difficulties you have, and it, I wasn't. It was never actually quite clear to me what had changed, but that's what changed the, the, the ability to speak and to interact in that way. Yeah, like there's a couple moments where you know, we're we're eating pizza together, and and I, and she goes pee pee, <laughs> which <laughs> which means pizza, and uh, yeah, it's actually, actually I'll read you the beginning of this chapter, it's sort of a. It's called Slice of Life, and one day I take Una to Sal's Pizza on our corner. I order two slices, and we sit at a, at a table and eat. She's thrilled. I say, Una, do you like the pizza? She says, pee-pee, which I'm pretty sure means pizza, and also yes. When we finish our slices, she says, pee-pee. 
She wants more pizza. And also, yes. I'm not quite sure what to do. Her mom said one slice, but she didn't say anything about two slices. How much pizza can a one-year-old eat? The battle cry grows stronger. Pee-pee! I can see this look in her eye that I recognize. She wants more pizza, and she wants it now. And, uh... And that, and there's a few of those in the final chapters of the book where that's, for me, it was in some ways as simple as that, as I was, I was able to start connecting with her verbally. And, and I, I feel really silly saying that that's part of it, but that was part of it. So I've been thinking about how to have this conversation because one, I was so excited for somebody to want to come on the show. People want to listen to it to talk about fatherhood because it's like most of what I think about now, but obviously it's not the, the main part of my job, but also that, that you had a very different experience of the first year. And, and I always felt totally unprepared for the first year. And so I sort of want to talk about the things that I feel like I couldn't find anyone saying anything about. And in particular, I want to talk about this like question of how do you bond with your kid? Sure. Because so to just give you a little bit of a sense of of our of our, our story here, um, my son was born six weeks early. We had a really, really medically hard pregnancy, um, and then a really scary birth. And then we spent um three weeks in the NICU. And it was all, I mean, all of that was unbelievably hard and traumatic. He's completely great in every way. And he's a giant and talking like everything's great now. So don't, um, so, so no, no need to worry, but, but that was all really hard. But one thing that happened along the way is that from the beginning, because he was too small to breastfeed. So we did a lot of bottle feeding, um, right at the beginning, um, because we were in the NICU where there was actually a lot of hands-on help from nurses, Mm -hmm. everything that my wife could do, I could do as well. Oh, wow. That would change over time as he got stronger. Yeah, but um, but I was able to like do every act of care. Mm-hmm. And something I was thinking about reading your book was that there were a lot of things that that wasn't true for for you because of your sleep condition. You had to sleep in another room, mm-hmm. um, so yep. you couldn't do as much of the night work as like I really. That was real bonding time for us. Mm-hmm. Sure, that like it seems like your partner breastfed, so like that's a real thing where you don't get to do like that part. And I feel like one of the hard things for dads in that first year a lot of time is particularly if your partner breastfeeds, you know, you your kid can't talk to you. So the only way to establish a relationship is through acts of care. But if all you're doing is washing bottles and changing diapers, it becomes hard. And then like you get into a cycle where the mom knows the kid better. And like that seems really hard. And I feel like it's something they don't tell dads to expect or try to work against. Yeah, I think that that's I mean, yeah, I say in the book, I say, you know, I felt you know, I, w- I was the pudgy, milkless vice president of the family. Like, like they <laughs> loved each other so much. And I was there too, you know, and, and like, I was nothing. <laughs> like, I didn't know what nothing meant until I became a dad. And then I was like, oh, that's what nothing is. And, and, uh, and I, and I'll tell you something interesting about do- performing this show in what whatever it was, 40, 50 cities and on Broadway for a hundred performances is, is that, a lot of dads come up to me and they say, that's exactly what I experienced. But then an equal amount of moms come up to you and say, that was my exact experience. And so I actually don't even think my experience was 100% specific to being a dad. I, I think that there's a degree to which some parents, they bond immediately with the baby. And there's some who bond at six weeks or six months or a year 
And honestly, like Ezra, like I don't think people talk about it. Like my, the reason I wrote the book was because when this, when I was experiencing it, this thing of not connecting, I was looking around for who else has written about this. What, who, you know, who can I learn from? Nobody was saying, can I say, can I curse on the podcast? I don't know. Yeah, please. No one fucking, no one fucking says anything about this. There's also, fucking... don't you not curse? Is it, isn't that your thing? No, it's not. <laughs> have I, I just it. have I just broken the broken Mike Birbiglia? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so <laughs> angry. No, it's uh, I curse minimally. Is the truth. I mean, I'm ah. not like I'm not like Jim Gaffigan or Jerry Seinfeld, where I have like I never curse. Um, but uh, but I find it to be uh, typically uh, I don't curse a lot on stage because I find it to be not the best word choice. Uh, until it is essentially uh and so i, I find it's, it's used excessively by comedians in a way that i i don't do as much and so uh, and, and then of course whenever my stuff is on public radio there's no cursing on it um so if i'm on this american life telling a story there's no cursing but anyway i'm i was fucking mad <laughs> is what i'm saying <laughs> uh that there wasn't anything about this feeling of like oh my gosh what if i never truly connect or bond with my child and uh and how scary that was and and so that i mean i wrote the book with honestly i had no intention of writing about having children to be honest with you everyone comes up to me they go oh your daughter's five you're gonna write a book about uh how what it's like to have a five-year-old and i go no I'm writing a, a my next book is about my own death because that's what I think about all the time because I'm in middle age, <laughs> but uh, but I really don't want to talk about having a child again. I feel like this is what I have to say about it. This is a novel thing that I haven't seen written about, uh, and so that yeah, that's why I wrote it. It's you know the place where I found a lot of this was online was Reddit. Before we had a kid, oh. I used to like spend a lot of time on Reddit dad forums, and there's a lot of stuff there about um, not bonding. But it's also a really scary place. It's not a—I um, don't mean—I mean, I guess Reddit can be a scary place, but it's—it's <laughs> it's a little bit like um, I found searching for information as a expectant dad or as a as a new dad to be a little bit like Googling health system health symptoms where everything is cancer. Yep. Like I went one night to uh, Google. And I don't remember what I was trying to find, but it was something about sleeping. But so my sentence began, I'm a dad and. And what, <laughs> <Okay>. it, auto, <laughs> what it begins, it was like, I'm a dad and I hate my child. I'm a dad oh and gosh. I want to leave. I'm a dad and I want to oh divorce. I'm, I'm like, oh my God. And it's funny because on the one hand, you say that there's not a lot of conversation about um this experience of being a, a dad. And on the other hand, my experience was that there wasn't a lot of positive conversation about it either. I went and I like gathered a lot of the dad literature I could find. And no offense to people who've written that literature, it was bad. It was thin. It was bad. There's like a couple interesting things. Michael Lewis wrote a book at one point. Yes, he did. I think yep. it was a little thin, but it came from his slate columns. But it's a little bit about this. Like he's trying to explore that same question. He says at yep. the beginning, of how do I go at the beginning from like sort of wanting to protect this thing to being willing to jump into traffic for it. Yep. Um, and he's tracing that, but it's, I like wanted that book to be five times as long or something. And there just isn't that much. There's a lot of, um, I would call it bro dad literature. Like, sure. like you're going to be a dad, bro. And like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's going to suck, but like not all parts of it are good. It's like a very um, insulting discourse. It's weird. Like the, 
you I'll tell I'll tell you something the conversation about fatherhood is just sort of weird and thin. Well, I'll I'll uh I'll try to sell some books for you because God knows we need to move some of your books. Uh, it's a polarization. It's a polarization issue. <laughs> it really, <laughs> it really is. A, but I, and I, and I, I actually truly mean this. There's a polarization when it comes to discussing children, and the polarization is there's either a saccharine. Um, you're going to love your baby and it's so beautiful and it's the most beautiful thing you've ever experienced and you're seeing the world through baby's eyes and then there's the other end of the polarization which is fuck these kids they're going to fucking take my money and fucking blah 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 and it's like literally there's nothing in between in my experience in my experience and that's why uh, part of the reason I wrote this book is part of the reason I wrote the, the Broadway show is that I was like, no, no, I want to tell my story, which is actually in its dead center in between those two experiences. It is a very special experience having a child. And it is also very lonesome sometimes. And I just felt like that hadn't been written. And to be honest with you, I don't know if this happens in politics as well to, to speak to what your book is about, but like... What I found is, in general, the book and the show really connect with people, but there is there is a small contingent of people who get very upset when they pick something up that they think is going to be the saccharine, I had a child book, and then it's not. I could totally buy that. I mean, that definitely happens in politics, 100%. I think people get truly, truly upset. There's a line in the show and in the book where I say, you know, at my rock bottom moment, I had this thought and that thought was I get why dads leave. And first of all, actions speak louder than words. I, I didn't leave. I'm not going to leave. And I, I say that in the show and in the book. But even having that thought and putting it into the universe was really upsetting for some people. And I get why, but also I'm glad I put it out there because it, was, it wasn't out there in anything I'd read. I wonder how many of the people it's really upsetting for to the extent their parents, it's, it's like scratching a little too deep. You know, of course. I mean, and it's so sad. And if, and it, I mean, comedy is, <laughs> the thing about comedy, com comedy since I entered the profession 20 years ago, went from being sort of an indie art form to being popular to the detriment of the art form of comedy. Because I think that when you say things in a, in a comedy setting right now, people go, I don't like that you're saying that, but you know what? Maybe it wasn't for you. You know, <laughs> like 20 years ago, you wouldn't have ever picked up a comedy book or, 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 or seen a comedy show. So maybe it's not for you. I don't know. It's all so, such a weird, I don't know, parenthood is a weird discourse. And I think probably weirder now that we don't have like big multi-generational families, like to be my political self about it. I bet it was really different becoming a parent in a culture where there are lots of kids around all the time. But for a lot of folks now, it's like if you, you know, if you moved away from home, from the place you grew up, um, you know, and you waited into your, say, 30s to, to have kids and you're not in a, a community where there's like big multi-generational families, 
you're going into something you don't see. And so it's like, maybe there didn't need to be this big literature because there's this constant lived experience. Um, you know, yes. you had it and the people around you have it, but but now there's not. Um, something I think about all the time from that period is when people talk to me about it, it's very easy. And I still feel this when I talk to others, I can really explain what I lost, right? If you oh. don't have a kid, I can really explain it, right? Like, my being tired feels a lot like you're being, not literally you're being tired because you might jump out a window, but uh, most people's being tired. Mm -hmm. And my like not having enough time for work or for myself or for my partner or, you know, not having not having agency over my time, all that stuff feels more or less the way you would expect. And And I'm not somebody who thinks like parenthood is easy or purely beautiful or anything else. And on the other hand, the things I gained, I couldn't have quite explained yeah, um, and certainly weren't right. explained to me. Like, I like my son more than I thought I would. I thought I would love <laughs> sure. my kid, not like them. <laughs> yes, yes. I, do, I completely relate to that, by the way. Isn't that a weird feeling? Like, uh, I was it's like, crazy. oh, I knew I'd want to protect you, but you seem great. No, absolutely. But the end of that is simply that one of the reasons I think that's bad is not like just to make the point about the asymmetry, but that. I think if somebody had told me or had been able to convey or there was more literature about the like what what the what the good parts are, not that it would have changed my decision about when to do it or whether to do it, but maybe I would have understood a little bit better what I'm trying to build. You know, like what yeah. I where I'm trying to put my energy, like what it means for me to be a good dad. I felt like there was a lot of like how to not let your kid die in the crib, but not yes. a lot of how to like build a good relationship with your son. And I just, I just how given how ubiquitous the experiences, it's just genuinely weird to me. Yeah. You were talking in one, in one of your interviews on this podcast recently about how becoming a parent is an unexplainable, Im impossible to explain experience. And the best way that I can describe it to people who, who haven't had kids is that it doesn't, if you had a kid, it doesn't mean you're better. doesn't mean you know more. doesn't mean whatever. But there is, <laughs> there's a superiority that some parents have over people who don't have kids because there's an aperture opening that occurs where, and some people describe it as like your heart getting bigger or your aperture opening, where you see things in a way that you literally couldn't see them before. And the, and the joke I make in the book is at the beginning of the book, I'm so annoyed by these parents who are like, you have to have a kid. It's the best. You see the world through baby's eyes. And I'm just like these losers telling me I'm going to see the world through baby's eyes. And then at the end of the book, I'm, I'm basically, you know, it's spoiler alert. It's like, I'm seeing the world through baby's eyes. Like you really do become the cliche and it's, it's nearly impossible to explain. I totally don't see the world through my kids' eyes. <laughs> really? Oh, really? <laughs> I don't think I do at all. Uh, sometimes I see, um, I mean, in the sense that it's like everything is gray except something that is sharp or could be lit on fire or climbed. Like I, I have developed this sort of like danger vision that he seems to have in a more positive sense. Yes. But um, I feel more, I don't even know if I want to say this. I feel more like myself than I thought I would. <laughs> um before okay. right i thought i would change in certain ways more before yeah but like that a relationship deeper than any other is now in my like it's it's almost more like um like marriage or something than anything else that 
I, I've never, I don't really identify so much with like parent culture exactly. Although clearly I, I've been trying to find books on it. Um, but that I just sort of identify like as I'm in this one relationship and it's very, very intense and yes. it like really reorders my world. And there's something kind of cool about, or it can be cool. Some days it's very frustrating about not being the center of your own world anymore. There yes. are a lot of days where I sort of wish I didn't have to take the morning shift. <laughs> yeah, and then, sure. Uh, on the other end of it, I'm like, I'm, I'm really glad I was there and was not just sitting here staring at my computer. Like, I'm not as good a judge sometimes as what would make for a nice day as my um, very angry until he gets out of the house toddler is. Yes. I was going to read you a thing because it, it, I was going to essentially paraphrase something off the top of my head. And then I was like, actually, there is like a there is a passage about this, um, <laughs> which is uh, I, I at, the, at the hospital, I describe, you know, at a certain point, you know, they hand you this monkey and you're like, but we're we're humans. And they're like, this is this is what it is. And then you're like, can we speak with a can we speak with a manager? And they're like, there isn't one. And you're like, that's the problem. And uh, and I say, this is what relates to what we were just talking about. I'm not immediately in love with our monkey. I'm committed to our monkey. I start trying to figure out how to finance our life with the monkey for the next 20 years. If someone tried to take the monkey, I would have punched that person until they killed me. But I'm not attached to the monkey. I'd like to tell you I was. Some people are, and some people aren't. And the ones who aren't generally don't tell you they aren't. I would do anything for our baby monkey, but it doesn't mean I understand our baby monkey. And that that's that's sort of how I how I feel about the first couple of years is like this thing of I'm wildly defensive of our child, but I don't understand it. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. By the way, I just want to tell you, I loved in that section of your book, and you, you said it here too. The um, I would have punched them until they killed me. Just oh, a very, yeah, yeah, very funny of course, line. I would lose. I would lose, of course, <laughs> in the in the battle. I would lose, but I would try. Yeah, I mean, you you, you try. That's like the that's like the key thing. I find the um, dance of chemicals in the brain on this really. I don't know if I want to say amazing or f infuriating. Because yeah. you just realize what a what a mark you are for your own for your own brain chemistry. <laughs> so the thing that is the the weirdest thing of everything about being a parent to me is the things my son is doing are, I would say, like objectively not that impressive. Sure, he's walking. Um, most people walk. Right. He has developed the capacity to name objects in his world, as do most people. I mean, like the things he's doing are. <laughs> It would be really like they're terrible unremarkable. if they weren't they're working out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're they're unremarkable. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sitting here following human excellence yet. Um, you know, and yet my level of intense the joy and following and did you see and like where are your teeth and and there's this the, the it is to me like the the weirdest most profound thing about parenting the way it invests so much magic in the banal. Right. The way you're going through literally the most generic experience a human being can go through, like you went through it, your parents went through it, their parents yeah. like, wouldn't be here if everybody hadn't done it up until this moment. Yeah. And yet it is like the most vivid, intense, amazing thing of your life. The, the only thing I sometimes um, analogize it to is uh, 
Like if you explained a day on a psychedelic to somebody, like I sat there and stared at a tree, they'd be like, that doesn't sound very interesting. <laughs> be like, no, but like, but this tree and in this context and the way I was thinking right. about it, it was like an amazing day. Um, and it has some of that where it's like, you're not doing anything from the outside all that interesting, but to you, like whatever's going on in your brain, it is just the most profound, intense journey um, that you've like ever seen a, ever seen a creature conduct. Ezra, I don't want to tell you your life, but you're seeing the world through baby's eyes. Damn it. <laughs> Maybe you're right. Maybe you're, you're, the, you're, you're literally just rephrasing the cliche. <laughs> you think you're being clever and intellectual. You're just saying I'm seeing the world through just baby's rephrasing eyes. the cliche. Yeah, that is I will say that is the, the most self-annihilating part of parenthood is realizing every other parent was right about everything. That's right. All the things where you're like, I'm not going to be an uncool parent moving out to have a backyard. And, and like, you know, like, nope, <laughs> they were right about it. They were like, all those parents are like, I can't do anything between 12 and 10 p.m. at night because of nap time. And you're like, come on, it's just nap time. And it's like, nope, <laughs> they were right. The, the, one of the things when we when Jen and I were deciding to have a child, she really did say, and it's in the book, but she said, this baby isn't going to change the way we live our lives. And I said, of course it will. It fundamentally will change the way we live our lives. It's, it's, it's the definition of what having a child is. And, uh, and she insisted that that was true. And of course, it's, you know, everything's flipped up upside down. If people watch the Netflix version of this special, it's, there's a point in the show and uh, it's a spoiler again, but where after we have the child, all of these hundreds, if not thousands of toys fall from the ceiling of this Broadway theater at the court. And, the, and for the rest of the show, I'm walking through all this crap, toys and diapers and, and, and crap. And, and that's, I can't tell you how many parents came up to me and said, the toys on the stage that's been our life for the last three years. It's exactly what our life is like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he does and he doesn't even care about them. That's the that's the killer. Right. Exactly. <laughs> My whole house is filled with bright plastic crap, and all he wants to do is bang metal implements into cookware. No, I know. I mean, my friend Ben said to me when our daughter had just been born, he said you know, you'll buy them all kinds of stuff. And what they really want to play with is a cardboard box. Tell me a bit about the writing you did in this book about what having a kid did to your marriage for the first year. Because that is, I think, a tough part of all this. And it's one that I think is scary to anybody who goes into it. And I felt as a reader that I I was stunned by some of the things you were actually admitting. And then at the end, you talk about how hard it was even to have these conversations about the book with your partner. So I guess my question on this is like, how, how did you come up with even like the, the willingness to have the conversations to put these things in a book with your partner? Well, all of it was stuff that I'd written in private journals. And a lot of Jen's poetry was stuff that she had written privately in her notebooks. And it was, I think it was a year and a half in, when we were at a film festival and the and the festival asked me if I would tell a story uh, and uh, in the story, the theme was jealousy. And and I said, no, I don't think I'm going to tell a story. And Jen said, you're jealous of our daughter, Una. 
you should talk about that. And in, and in some ways it was like a challenge. It was like, I was like, really? You want me to talk about that? Cause I'll talk about that. And I have some thoughts. <laughs> and so that week, uh, Jen and I, I've prepared an hour and a half. Yeah. Yes. And in that week, Jen and I sort of talked out what I had written in my notebook and she shared some poems with me and I shared some jokes with her. And and then I told a story at that storytelling night. And really it was, it, it was, it got a lot of laughs. I mean, it had the line, which is, I love my, my wife and daughter love each other so much and I'm there too, you know? And, and that was really the incarnation of the whole show and the whole book. And, and to be honest with you, like it was every step of the way in writing this book was what it was challenging to have these conversations. Cause it was like going to couples therapy, except there's no therapist. You know, it's just like, it's no, there's no arbiter of truth. And, and, and one of the themes of the book is that there's two very different sides of the same story. And that's actually a piece of advice I give to all married couples, regardless of whether you're having a child is, is that I would say one piece of advice is always, you have to accept in marriage that you are, you are two people who are witnessing nearly identical events at the same time and will have completely different memories of those same events. And, and that's, that's hard, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to negotiate, which is why I feel very lucky to have found my life partner in Jen, someone who is willing to crack that step wide open and, and who understands that flaws are part of what make us unique as opposed to deal breakers in, in marriage. I was thinking when I read that, those parts of the book, about something in Lost in Translation, the movie. Sure, we love that one. Where yeah. it, it's so good. It's one of those movies that um, I will watch whenever I am not feeling great. Yeah, it, that's, it has that quality for me. It's really special. And at some point, he's ta- uh, Bill Murray's talking to Scarlett Johansson's character. And she's like, tell me about being a parent. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing here from memory, that, oh, it's amazing. They grow up into these like amazing people. And then she's like, and, and and how about marriage? How does that? And he's like, well, that's harder. Oh, that's interesting. And I always like thought that was like this really sad. And and uh, this is not like a reflection on mine. Like my, my wife and I are happy. But um, but there is something that seems really unfair uh, in that kind of first year, which is that you have all this like chemical protection in your relationship with the baby, but it does not extend to your relationship with the partner. And like everybody I know has had kids it's not always hard on the marriage, but it often is. And like, there's research on this that marital happiness goes down. And I don't, again, here's another place where I don't feel like people are given a lot of good constructive advice about what to do aside from, you know, try to try to keep things clean. But, um, but it's a, it's a trickier part of this that I think requires like work. And it's one thing I I really appreciated about the book that I felt that you, you had a particularly rough go of that, but I think just warning people that something that needs a lot of attention is really is really important yeah i i i sometimes say and it sometimes in jest and sometimes i'm not sure it's in jest is is that in some ways you should choose after a child is born whether or not you're gonna get married again (laughs) and go to city hall like we did on our first time and get and get married again and renew your vows 
because it's a different it's a different marriage it, and it's just a different relationship it did and 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 that's part of the reason why the book and the show was called the new one because it's really about change and how th- you know i asked my brother at one point i say joe you know what is it like being a, a parent and he and he and, and he says it's not better or worse it's just new. And that was the that was where the title came from, the new one, which is the new baby, the new life, the new marriage, the new consciousness. It's everything about it is new and if you have this sense of it's not going to be that, I think therein lie the, a lot of the challenges. What advice would you give to somebody who came to you now and was going to have a kid or you know, was having a kid and like wanted to be a good husband during it. I mean, are there, you've had this experience, are there things you wished you had done differently or things that you feel somebody would have told you it would have helped? I think this is for any parent, I would say, is if, if you're in a partnership or a marriage of any kind, is always do more than you think you should. Always do more dishes, always sweep the floor more, always do do more laundry always you know change more diapers like any anything that you think will help do more of it because you'll never regret doing more for your partner and that's where i fucked up (laughs) 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 that's where this is a that's why this is a cautionary tale um is you know this is definitely not a manual for having a child. It is a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale about uh, how not to be a parent. Yeah, that that question of, um, I mean, this is one of those things that I think feels obvious, but then you live it. You've got a routine about how to keep your space in reasonable order and how to keep like everybody's energy in reasonable order. And that really goes away. And then it changes a lot, right? I mean, sleeping habits change and, you know, at some point they begin walking around and their main activity is taking everything out of every place it is and putting it on the floor sure, um, or into some new place you don't expect. <laughs> and your systems aren't built for that. Yeah. Your chore wheel isn't built for that. Yeah. Like that, that is one thing that, um, so, you know, I have like had to become like much more sensitized to, you just like have to give not just the parenting, the parenting, I don't want to say it's the easy part, but it's a little bit in some ways more straightforward in part because your kid screams at you if you're doing a bad job at it. Whereas like the other things, like you, like they need attention because they don't shout, but they do build up a lot of frustration or all of a sudden everybody's mad and you realize it's because the house is in terrible disarray. Like that's like, I I feel like there should just be like books about how to like, maybe there are, um, there, there should be more help on how to manage all those parts of it. Cause they're more important than one would expect. Um, and I feel like, again, like back when people lived in bigger multi-kin families, probably that all just got redistributed. But when it's just you and your partner, it's really just on you. And that's pretty new. And we have pretty high cleanliness standards in the modern world Sure. Um, and often two jobs in the house and it's tough. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was talking to Hassan Minaj about this the other day, who has two children, and and he said that we have like in in Indian culture, this is true too. Like with his parents, like we have this like 
sort of perfection cultural in, in America and in India, et cetera, like this perfection complex of everything needs to be clean and perfect and shiny. And, and in some ways, that's what comedy is for, is basically to say, actually, no, everything's going to be really fucked up and that's okay. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah. I mean, that's always one of those things too, right? How do you, do, do you begin to, to, to live with different standards than you did before, which is a good thing to have an explicit conversation about, I would say, but it's, it is all just different. It, it is why I really like the, the title, the new one. Something that comes up in the book a bit, which I was curious about is you very much describe yourself as a workaholic in the book. It's yeah. kind of clear that at some point you figured out that you could do this amazing job um, and you could do it well. But I think people who find that out a little bit later in life, there's a real desperation to how they cling to it. Um, I've mm. been to that, I think myself, or maybe I'm reading myself into you. Kids are not great for that. Th those two things don't coexist super well. How sure. has having a kid changed your relationship with your work or your work identity? I used to travel to sometimes a hundred cities in a year. I, I've been everywhere. I think I make a joke in the book, which is I've, I've performed in some places that aren't even towns. They're just an Applebee's with a dream. And, and, and it's like, I go everywhere and I really, I at a certain point, I, I just, when Una was born and just decided I'm not going to go to a hundred cities. I might go to 20 cities. I might go to 15 cities, that kind of thing. And, and, and so that's changed a lot. I've sort of like, you know, I, I had the show run off Broadway and on Broadway in New York, which is near home. And, and that, was it yeah i mean that was a huge that was just a huge life transition and uh but yeah i agree with you i think the workaholism is like a thing that is possibly just a crutch too like i don't know it, what happened i think is i my dad was a doctor he's a neurologist and he really put so much emphasis in in my family i'm youngest of four on education and our professions and so he he was definitely a workaholic he wasn't around a lot and he's a really good doctor. And so when I got out of you know, Georgetown and said, I'm going to move to New York City and be a professional stand-up comedian, <laughs> I mean, to say that he was disapproving would be the understatement of the century. <laughs> like, he really, he really, like sort of disowned me. I mean, he didn't say the word disown, but it was sort of, it was unspoken that that was not going to be an acceptable thing if I wanted to come home for Christmas. And, and so I was, I, I had this pressure to succeed so quickly. And I, everything that I was doing, which was essentially like booking myself at comedy clubs by cold calling the comedy club lines and saying, hey, I'm a comedian and here's I'll send you my tape and blah, blah, blah. I, I, I was I was basically like a full time traveling salesman, uh, telemarketer and comedian all at once. I slept probably seven hours a day and and then worked the rest of my waking hours. And that's that's how I came up. That's what I was trained on. And I think like a lot of millennials now, there's like this big conversation about workaholism versus, you know, so I think some millennials go like, would, would say to me, and maybe rightfully so, by the way, they'd go, well, that's your choice. You do you. I'm going to work healthy hours and have a healthy life. 
<laughs> and and I and it's hard because when I hear that argument, I'm like, yeah, that's not wrong. I don't know. That's just sort of how it, I came up. That's so yeah. I, I'm trying to think about that for a minute. I because there's also this whole conversation about millennials as like the burnout generation. The thing in there that I kind of see in my own life is, and the thing that is always been tricky for me with parenthood is I just got really used to measuring my own value by how much work I got done in a day. Yeah. Like it's sort of like how I justified my existence here for a day. Yeah. And you're going to get less work done. Like that is a true fact. Uh, Michael Chabon actually has a really nice book about fatherhood. And he talks about this about a um, Michael Chabon, the author. And he talks about, I should have mentioned his book earlier. Manhood for amateurs, right? Yeah. And it's just, it's great actually. And I, I read it. I, re- I read that. I, I read that. I think it's fantastic. And he talks about uh, an, an older novelist telling him that for every child you have, that's one fewer book. That's one less book you're going to write books. Yes. One fewer books you're going to yes. write. And him just saying like, yeah, okay. Like that's like, this seems okay. It's a reasonable, reasonable trade-off. But it is like, that is a, again, like a hard thing to begin to transition I mean, I work weekends. Like, I, I, it's not healthy, and and so sure. traditionally, it's not been healthy. And transitioning over to, like, it was a good day because I spent it, you know, like being a parent and then resting. I mean, oh, that's the other fucking thing. The 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 one maybe you can tell me how to fix this because like I am still struggling here. I used to burn myself out on the week. Mm-hmm. I may do a bit of work on the weekends, but you can rest some of the weekends. the The end of weekends is a time when I can rest. Yeah, I have not figured that out at all. Like, I just don't know where to where to put resting. I wrote a bit about this the other day, and it's um, and I'm it'll be on my podcast soon. <laughs> but it's uh, when yeah, I remember a few weeks ago it was a Saturday, and I'd worked all week, and I was quote unquote off, and then I realized when you have kids, there is no off. There's only on <laughs> and and more on and off. It's more, more on, on yeah. than on. When you're off, you think, oh, man, I wish I had more time on because you can't tell your five-year-old daughter, I'd love to get you a band-aid for your boo-boo, but I'm off. And even the term off is misleading because when you're off, you're still alive. I mean, actual off is dead. Like I, I read in the news, I read in the newspaper, a guy jumped off a bridge. He's off. If you're alive, you're on. And uh, and, and in Buddhism, when you, you try to turn off, and you try to think nothing. And for me, it never works. I fall asleep, which for me is is on. Because I sleep I sleepwalk. <laughs> but that was that was uh that was what I wrote. I literally wrote that almost identical thing the other day. And then the pandemic, of course, it's completely heightened because you're not going to work. You're you're home, which you're on. Yeah, that's that is the part of this. I'd be curious to hear how pandemic ha- has affected you on this. I think I'm a lot sadder about it because I'm a parent. Um, yeah. Like I would have been sad about it anyway. It would have been horrible. But I don't know. My kid should be able to go to a playground and like play with other children. He's supposed to be able, I'm supposed to be able to take him to a bookstore and yeah. like let him pull out books and look at them. I'm supposed to be able to take him around other people. Yeah. And I can explain to myself why I can't do any of that and that I may at some point be able to, but I like we walk um, in our neighborhood, like past a playground that is gated up and there's a padlock. Yeah. Understandably. Right. I mean, they're, they're closed. Of course. But it is, it's sad on a million levels and like 
people are dying and they've lost their jobs. And I mean, there's there's tragedy ripping across the country. Yes. But there's also just this like poignancy to not being able to explain to somebody who is just learning what other people are. I think that's absolutely true. That you I mean, are supposed to be able to go near them, just not right now. No, I mean, Jen and I lament this constantly. And it's part of the reason that we came out to Rhode Island is we got this little Airbnb that has a backyard, basically. And because we want Una to be able to run around and we got like a slip and slide, you know, like we're just doing anything we can to give some sense of like, you know, the joys of nature and summer and her cousins and we try to take her to the beach, all this stuff. But I will say like the, the, I, I should, I should plug this thing that Jen and I are doing. We're doing a virtual bookstore tour in August um, of local bookstores because you're saying this thing of like, like that you'd like to be able to take your son to a bookstore. And it's like, we really do have to protect, you know, our bookstores, our, our pizzerias, like all of these, our, our restaurants are our, our places that are not protected in the pandemic. And I, I mean, I, there've been articles written about this, but I think you can't emphasize this enough. Some of these places will not make it through the pandemic on, you know, comedy clubs. I did a whole, uh, I, I raised a lot of money for wait staffs at comedy clubs across America called Tip Your Wait Staff, and we helped with all these GoFundMe pages raise about six hundred thousand dollars. And we're still, if people want to contribute, there's a site called TipYourWaitStaff.com, and there's a, a map where you can find the, the, the local comedy club. It, you know, all these places that we take for granted that are that are small businesses may not exist if we don't support them right now. And and bookstores is a prime, prime example. I, I mean, books are magic in my neighborhood in, in Brooklyn is one of the, our favorite places to be with Una on the face of the earth. Are there things that you have found to, to do with her that you think if we were not in a pandemic, you wouldn't have discovered, but you're happy you did? <laughs> I think that one of the things about, I mean, we're city people, we live in Brooklyn. And so one of the things that's been kind of awesome is, is like, you know, we have a backyard and once again, Ezra, we're seeing the world through baby's eyes, having a backyard with rocks and bugs and rabbits and all these things is it's very special, you know, and she sees a couple rabbits in a day. She goes nuts, you know, and she collects rocks and, you know, all these things that are that are in a city are harder to come by. Yeah, there has I, I've had a little bit of that too. I mean, I guess okay, fair enough. Seeing the world through baby's eyes. <laughs> I had a thought um, not long ago when I realized like how nuts he, my my, my son went outside, like just like how much he was ha- how happy he always was to be outside, and like I've been a city person for a long time. Um, lived in D.C. for 15 years and uh, live in the Bay Area now, and just realizing that uh, like I wanted him to be able to be around trees. Yeah, Like that had not been something I would have thought about before because I like trees just fine, but don't think about them very often. But like he clearly does or animals or whatever. Um, that there's some like very obvious connections between kids and nature. Like they're clearly tuned to pay attention. Sure. Like my son's first word was doggy. Like he just <laughs> shouts doggy. All yeah, yeah, yeah. And like still now he's got a lot of words, but like doggies remains our favorite word um, yeah. all the time. Like from the first moment we wake up oh. to the moment we go to bed. And it's very cute, but there's also clearly something in him that is like more interested in animals and people. 
Yeah. And there's like a funny thing where human beings are very adaptable. Um, my All my favorite uh, parenting literature is by uh, Alison Gopnik. Oh, who's yeah. She's been on the show before and she's a philosopher and child scientist child research scientist and she's she's great but i've been reading her book the the philosophical baby and she talks about how the fundamental thing about the the human mind and the child's mind particularly is how open it is to changing so you can like change kids out of that mm. but there's very clearly um looking back as somebody who has probably been changed out of that somewhat like there's clearly like an expectation that that will be there right that's like where they start and like you can teach them that oh like you know, we don't live around animals. Animals are food. Don't worry about it. Sure, but um, but sure. if you if you don't go in that direction, like they're just gonna be like, oh my God, trees and dogs. Yeah. I was going to read this poem of Jen's, which is, uh, which is my favorite poem of hers, which is called Unidad. <laughs> um, but it sort of speaks to like the, the, the tiny, the tiny joys of in things. Uh, which I think we're we're experiencing a bit more in the pandemic. And it's called Unidad. This is, again, this is my wife, J-Hope Stein's poem. I write wall on the wall. I write bathroom on the bathroom door and cat on the wall above the litter bin. I write mirror on the mirror so mirror appears across our faces. My three-year-old daughter, Una, cackles maniacally. Her joy of letters and language has started a compulsion in the house where we write everything on our walls and doors and windows. I write mom and dad on the bedroom door and she draws a picture underneath. That's you on your wedding day. She draws a picture of herself on her bedroom door and writes her own name. On all the rest of the doors in the house, I write door, except the hallway closet where she insists on writing a double backwards H-I, so I-H-I-H. I write earth and star on the wall, on the refrigerator I write food, book on the bookcase, bed on sink, sink on tub, tub on tub. On the wall near the toilet, my daughter writes, hi. She draws a big rainbow on the hallway wall and I write rainbow. She traces the letters with her fingers. She draws a sun on the wall and I write sun. On the stairs, I write step. If you draw a tree on the window, I'll write tree, I tell her, and we do. If you draw a hippo, I'll write hippo, and we do. She draws a mean caterpillar mommy and a mean caterpillar baby on the wall, and I write mean caterpillar mommy and mean caterpillar baby. She draws a picture of our family and says, that's you in the lipstick. I have read some poetry in my life. But the most beautiful sentence I have ever seen in the English language is written by my three-year-old daughter, Una, in bright pink chalk on the sidewalk in front of my house. Una, Dad. Una and Dad are one word, she explains, because Una and Dad love each other. And the two little lines above the word, as to offer accent or emphasis, it means... They love each other. It's called Unidad. I loved your wife's poetry throughout the book. Um, one thing I was going to ask you about it, which I don't know if you feel comfortable speaking for on this or not, but a lot of it is aquatic. Um, there's she's a fish for yes, a bunch of it. It is. A lot of it is oceanic, <laughs> yeah. water. Yeah, it is. What what it what is. is it about the experience that um, felt so aquatic? 
Jen and I, this is before Una was born and, and, and since she was born, we spend a lot of time, uh, at the museum of natural history. Uh, we're both fascinated by sea life and, and, uh, every year since she was born, we go to the museum of natural history on her birthday every year. And this year, because of the pandemic, it was closed. We weren't able to go. And so in our apartment, we recreated the museum of natural history. And my wife actually sewed a big blue whale (laughs) together out of felt and hung it from the ceiling, like the whale at, at the museum of natural history. And, um, yeah, it's just something that Jen muses over is sea life in her writing. And, uh, and obviously it, you know, it has a lot of connection to birth and life and, you know, human beings and animals. And, and, uh, yeah, it's just sort of a, a through line that the thematic through line that runs through the book. How has being married to a poet changed your writing or relationship with language? I mean, it just forces me to be better. I mean, you look at like someone like, like Mary Carr, who's one of my favorite authors, and she's also a poet. And I think that those two skills are, are quite interrelated, which is to say, I think she's a better prose writer because she is a poet. Because when I think when you learn the economy of words of poetry, it starts to bleed into all your other forms of writing. And I feel that I've written two movies at this point, Sleepwalk With Me and Don't Think Twice. And 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 in some ways, film is more like poetry than it is like prose. Um, and and I feel like that, you know, being married to a poet has made me a better writer. I think writing movies has made me a better writer. I think ultimately economy of words is is really a, a goal in, in 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 prose like one, one of the things that's funny about the book is it's as you like you were saying you read it in four hours it's a quick read but it is not for lack of more words i could have added <laughs> like it's intended to be that experience it's like the old mark twain line i would have written i'm sorry the letter what is it i'm sorry my letter is so long i would have been brief but i ran out of time <laughs> that's right yes which I've always, I've always, always loved that as a as a commentary on language. Um, I'll, I'll I'll kind of finish us off on this this language question because something I always think about is um, in in parenting is it's kind of changed my relationship to language, particularly in the way that it's made me mistrust it. Um, I feel much better understood usually by my son who can't understand most of the things I say than I do by other people. Um, and yes. I'm always surprised at how much can be communicated and then how much is actually getting lost or distorted, uh, you know, even as precise a communicator as I am. And it's, yes. it's, has, it's actually something that's shooken me a little bit. I'm, I'm much less sure now than I used to be that talking things out and trying to make yourself understood is actually operating at the right wavelength. Um, there's something really surprising I'm about sorry that. to cut you off Ezra but it sounds like you're hearing the world through baby's ears I'm gonna end this podcast I'm gonna end it and not really sit no you're absolutely right I mean I think I the I, I think that that's that's definitely something I completely relate to is this idea of I'm I've often find myself 
using my whole body and every word in my vocabulary or words that don't exist to try to convey uh, to Una, you know, that we're about to eat macaroni and cheese. (laughs) (laughs) But there's also just this funny way where, and I've said this, this I've talked about on the show before, but I feel like the reminder with a kid that a lot of what makes people act in different ways are their more animal needs. Mm-hmm. Maybe connect to 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 your to your partner's poems and ideas about being a mammal. And you know, you'll be with your your kid and it's like they're they're mad or upset or something. You start like running through this constant list of like, are they tired? Are they hungry? Do they need to get out of the house? Do they, you know, like is the diaper full? Is the sure. you know, it's very physical. And then yeah. it's like as soon as people begin to, to be able to talk, I like lose that completely. Like if you can tell me what's wrong. I will just trust that you are right about that and decide mm-hmm. about whether or not I agree when oftentimes it's probably that you're tired. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you see this in yourself too. Like I'm often a jerk and I'm like, oh, I'm tired. Like I am mad about things, but what's actually happening is I haven't slept. I think that's right. And I think with the pandemic, I think that's particularly true because we're we're all experiencing the same thing that you're describing, except times 10 or 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 more because there's so many restrictions on how we can remedy the issue whether it's we're tired we're angry we're hungry whatever the simple simple thing that we need is it's not as solvable as quickly and so to to circle back to your earlier question of sort of like how can we make sure that this isn't a lost year in our lives? It's, I think, possibly slowing down and acknowledging that some anger or, or something that we're upset about is simply a thought or a feeling and it'll pass and that, and that we don't need to solve it immediately. I think that's a nice, wise place to end. So let me ask you as always a final question here, which is what are three books you'd recommend? I love Bess Kalb's book, which came out this year. Nobody will tell you this but me, which is her Yes, it is memoir. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a memoir of... It's, I'm laughing as I say it because it's such a brilliant conceit. It's a memoir uh, through the eyes of her grandmother uh, that she wrote. And, and it's... So it's sort of, sort of somewhere between create. It's sort of creative nonfiction, and it's and it's so funny. And I think they're adapting it into a movie, and they should. It's really wonderful. And then uh, and then everything that Mary Carr and David Sedaris writes is perfect in my book. And and the same with Zadie Smith. I think Zadie Smith has a book coming out of essays later this month. And the last one I read of hers was called Feel Feel Free, which I highly recommend, and I can't wait to read her next one. Michael Berbiglia, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ezra. This is a real honor. Thank you to Mike Berbiglia for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here, to Roche Karma for researching, to Jeffy Geld for producing the Ezra Clancho is Vox Media podcast production. 